Greg Johnson, cornerback, uh, he'll never be more popular, maybe, at USC than he was last week. Uh, interesting situation where uh, the depth chart came out, a pre-spring depth chart, which has now become controversial. I want to check the record straight on these things. They come out every year. Like, that tradition has been going on for a long time. Pre-Elton. That's just very normal. Uh, that, that goes, I mean, Pete, Pete Carroll did this. Now, I didn't cover the teams before Carroll. I don't, I mean, I, I would imagine that they had something. Uh, I don't think that Carroll invented it. But, not new. Uh, maybe what was new to everybody was that we found out some of the developments on it. And, and the only reason why I found them out was because three players upon seeing it went to the coaching staff and informed them that they were quitting. And and so Greg Johnson was one of them. He was upset about where he stood on this pre-spring depth chart and initially entered the transfer portal now is out. He only missed one practice. And so this will all be, I guess, a footnote, if that, uh, in the near future. But briefly looking to leave Bakim upset about his standing. Uh, I think he thought at this point, at this juncture, especially given what they had at cornerback in the present, that he would be a starter. And I would just expect that he will be a starter uh, or that it will take a lot for him not to be moving forward. But one thing that maybe was lost in all this is that USC, again, signed a lot of cornerbacks late in the process, too, uh, on National Signing Day. And that might not have sat well with him, you know, and maybe some others that were already in the room. You know, I don't know if they like that. And... Uh, USC did that because they were so short-handed. Unfortunately, a lot of those guys, or basically nearly all of them, 
are not going to be at USC until the summer. They're not involved in spring practice. And that's where Greg Johnson, on top of already being in the program for two years, has a major leg up on all those guys with the new defensive backs coach. Um, but maybe he didn't like that. And we haven't been able to talk to him directly because uh, the players were not available uh, except for a select few on day one of spring practice. So we will not actually talk to him until after spring break. To, and I mean, I don't know that he's going to really be too open about any of it. But probably yeah, probably not. But uh, I, I couldn't tell you all of his rationale. I know it probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but uh, I'm glad he came to his senses because USC really needs him uh, more than you could imagine. Because even though he struggled last year, and you know by by the end of the year he was not playing. That's where he was at on the depth chart, and 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 that's where I think when you know Biggie Marshall and Isaiah Langley and Jonathan Lockett all leave then he's figuring, okay, I'm a lock to start. And he wasn't first team on that, that pre-spring depth chart. My question was, or is, who was? Because there's nobody healthy. Dominic Davis was, even though he has not practiced this week, and we don't even know his injury. We don't know the extent of it, and we don't know how long he'll be out definitively. Clay said that he could be back when they come out of spring break. But that's who was listed above Greg Johnson. Yeah. And the other question, though, and probably the one that he eventually rationalized for himself was, where is he going to have a better chance, a, a clearer path to a major role for a major program? I mean, whatever he that, that depth chart says at the start of the spring, if you're confident in your abilities and yeah. you see what the competition is, or just the, the, the pure lack of, of bodies, of experience, why would you think that any other situation is better for you? And I'm guessing that that was eventually conveyed to him either by the coaching staff or by people close to him, and or he just realized it himself. But like you said, he missed one practice, so this will, this will all be forgotten, and, and he's, he's on the team as, as if he never left. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, I know that players might have been a little bit upset about him initially taking a brief leave. That's what I was told. Uh, but I think he'll be forgiven. Um, it speaks to a larger issue regarding the transfer portal, which is uh, kind of, uh, it's like the new black, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's the wave of this winter, especially at USC. And there might be some misconceptions even about that. But what I can't explain to you is that basically the process for a student athlete isn't any different than it was before if they want to transfer. They have to get the release papers from the school. And uh, most often a coach will release you to schools outside of your conference. And, and then once you've been released, then you're allowed to be in communication with any other school. 
any other coaches, and you're basically fair game. Like you're a recruiter. Now, the in in that instance, if you're still at a school, you don't have to leave the team. Uh, it doesn't mean that you that you have to quit the team necessarily. That you can't practice or that you can't even play. I'll give you an example. Chuma Adoga got his release papers during his sophomore season at USC. He looked to transfer uh, around the same time that EJ Price got his release papers. And now EJ Price, you might remember, did not transfer initially. Uh, he was still at USC for several months after he had been dismissed from the football team. And then he didn't actually leave until the following summer. And Shuma had, was released, but never left. So the difference with the transfer portal is that once you're given your release, you're entered into this portal, and it becomes more public for the coaches, for the programs. It's not public to us. It's not public to the media. It becomes public to the media. But it, yeah, I mean, we, we'll hear about it, but, it, but it's not something that I can go log into and, and see everybody in it or not in yeah. it. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, we, we don't have logins. It doesn't, you know, that's why I want to make clear to everybody. But, uh, and the players don't log in either. It's, it's for the, the coaches. But the players' names are entered into it. And so, because they become public in, in that manner, like, if Chuma Doga had been in the transfer portal, if there had been one when he was a sophomore, then I think he probably would have been probably hotly pursued and very well might have left at some point sure. and, and not remained at USC for two more years. Well, Greg Johnson was only in there for about a week. And, and even though it was public, per se, uh, he decided that he was better off staying at USC. And, and my sources tell me that's really what a lot of the kids that are going in there have been looking for, the ones from USC, the ones that, that we're familiar with. They're going in there to be recruited again, and they want to see who wants them. And and not because I don't think they're playing games. I think that they're at a point in their career where they'd like to do more. And so right now you have a lot of third to fourth year guys who are on the cusp of graduating from USC. They're class of 2016 kids. That does not include Greg Johnson, but that would include Avalis Jones, or Josh Matarbebe, or Trevor Sidney. They're all 2016, so they're all on track to graduate this spring and then to grad transfer. And they can go anywhere and play right away, including within the conference, and they can play two more years. And that's where I think the transfer portal will affect things most, is that because you're out there and people are familiar, you know, everybody, basically every prospective Division One program would be familiar that you're available. You know, it's not just on the down low like it was before because with the release paper, which is still part of the process, you you have to probably, if you're a, if you're an athlete, you have to call everybody and tell them, hey, I, I'm, yeah. I'm released. Where you don't have to do any of that work and you're going to be fielding the calls I think now. I think that's where it will change. Again, it will be like 
when you're a recruit before you even sign to begin with. And it's important to note, though, that I don't think that USC situation is at all extreme. I mean, every program across the country is is adjusting to this new norm, this new reality. And some of the more successful ones uh, have a lot of kids in there. It's just, it's yeah. just part for the course now. It's, just, it's not a USC thing or a Clay Helton thing. It's just the way college football is transacted right now. Right. I think what what made it look bad or what's made it look bad for USC is that they got hit really hard at one position, yeah. a receiver, and going into or coming out of the season, you wouldn't have thought anything of it. And I remember even hearing about that first wave with Randall Grimes and then the Modern Baby and Sydney. And, and even then I thought, eh, whatever, <laughs> right? I, I, they, weren't, they weren't playing. And Keyshawn Young is not in the portal, but he is transferring. But uh, academically, he isn't where he needs to be to be in the transfer portal. That is a prerequisite to be academically eligible. And so they, they already were losing some. But then, you know, you added Brew McCoy to it, which was a very different thing. But technically, he went through the transfer portal, even though that had nothing to do with his transfer. He just he went there as like a, a formality. But uh, once he got his release, he was in Texas that same week and was basically already committed to them uh, you know, and, and nearly signed uh, before we knew he was in the portal. The, the portal had, had no part in anything with him. He was just basically still a recruit when he got to USC. So, uh, I, yeah. yeah. yeah um, so, 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 so fans are reacting to the, the overall number of people in there. But if you break it down, and really, aside from McCoy, which was its own situation, until we got to this last wave with Ray Johnson and Bayless, I don't think that there was an impact from the previous ones. And if anything, if you're getting scholarships back that you probably aren't going to be cashing in on, it's probably for the best. It's, it's, a, it's a win-win for both sides in most cases. Yeah, I, I think that they could have they could cut some of the fat and it wouldn't be affected. Uh, with Bayless, that one was a bit of a head stretcher, and, and that one still isn't resolved, as we know. Uh, Bayless right now is currently not with the team. He's in the transfer portal. Uh, there has been discussion about you know personal matters with him, and, and we don't know anything about them, and so out of respect for him, we won't even touch any of that because we do not know uh, what all is going on maybe behind the scenes. With Bayless, and we would hope that everything is okay for him uh, if, if it wasn't before. But uh, he is someone where uh, if he's able to remain at USC, I would expect would be in a good position, uh, even though he won't start. Not, not right now. Not the way USC is set up moving forward. Not with their top three. And I would say even Devin Williams is a player who I think would be uh, taking time away from everybody. I think he's just going to play more than he did, and that means that other guys will play a little bit less. But but Bayless would play. And, and going to this air raid, they want to use more. They want to lean on probably about a half dozen guys, and, and Bayless would definitely be in that group. He would never fall out of that top six. And, and that's why um, it is 
curious as to what would prompt him to ultimately ultimately leave if he still chooses. Well, let me add a thought to that. And this is kind of stepping on the topic we'll get to later in the podcast. But one of the more eye-opening comments this week to me was from new running backs coach Mike Jinks. And we'll talk about the greater uh, meaning of his comments as it applies to running backs later. But his point was that he he wants one guy in there because he doesn't want to sub. They want to move fast, keep the tempo, not give the defense a chance to adjust. And so I don't know how much rotation there's going to be in any position during the flow of a series. Yeah. And and, and, and so maybe Valence had a different perspective, and he evaluated it, and he said, I don't want to be the fourth or fifth receiver on a team. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe he didn't see more opportunity with this new offense, even though it is a pass-happy offense. Right, yeah. I mean, they're going to run more plays, and, and they are going to play fast, uh, but... I, I still would imagine that if you're the fourth or fifth guy, um, you're. I mean, I don't think he would play less than he did last year. And now, if he just expects to play more, um, okay. I mean, obviously, Key Martin's not there anymore, and I'm sure Key Martin had been in his ear throughout his career about how important and how special he was, um, even though his role at times was very limited, but. Uh, and he probably wouldn't be used in the in the same fashion where he was, you know, running the screens and and those things, you know, in motion. Uh, maybe it wouldn't it wouldn't work out that way. Maybe he loved what he was doing. I don't know. Like we haven't had the chance to talk to him, and I don't know that we will. But they're not going to just lean on three receivers in this offense. There's no yeah. way. Well, also, like you said at the top, though, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know his situation. I don't know what other factors are in his head right now. And it's it's just not fair for me to speculate as to what all is going into his thought process here. Yeah, but he is someone that, uh, from my vantage point, would could, could be an impact player and would have the opportunity to be an impact player. Uh, now, with Greg Johnson... It's just such a great need. Where last year Johnson was starting and lost his job, and by the end of the year, like I mentioned, just really wasn't even playing. But moving forward, uh, I know that we're going to talk about it later in the show, the defense and particularly the secondary, but he has a golden opportunity to be a full-time player. Where with Bayless, without an injury, that wouldn't happen. More to the point, though, he has a golden opportunity to seize this spring because he's going to get as many reps as he wants. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Elijah Griffin's out. Um, pretty much it's Isaac Taylor, Stewart, and Greg Johnson and a bunch of walk-ons at that spot right now. Right. So, uh, a, a DB who is not on the team but who was at practice, Mr. Bubba Bolden, uh, has been a... A uh, hot-button talking point for fans ever since the situation uh, in September, suspension and ultimately leaving the university and everything that followed. He was at practice on Thursday. He talked to his mother afterwards. I think people are still confused by the whole situation. What's kind of the uh, the Cliff Notes version of what's going on there? Yeah, let me, let me bullet point this. Okay, Bubba Bolden was suspended by the university... He is not currently suspended 
by the university. He's been reinstated. He opted not to enroll at USC, despite being able to now. The primary reason for him doing that is not because he hates USC and wouldn't want to play there, but it's because the group that suspended him, this is like the student affairs office on campus, they had to reopen their investigation. And it, 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 it's part of a bigger thing uh, where with, with certain laws that have been contested regarding Title IX, uh, they realized that they did not basically give him a due process. And it's something that we've seen for a while now at USC in particular. I can't speak on other schools, but at USC it's been a real problem for student athletes. Okay. So they're in the midst of another investigation. There's no definitive timetable for that investigation wrapping up, unfortunately. And with that, if Bubba Bolden right now were enrolled at USC, he would still be under scholarship. Clay has told him, you would be on my football team, on scholarship. I have a roster spot waiting for you. But if he were on campus... And then that decision were to come down, and he's suspended again, which could happen, depending on the verdict. Then, again, he's off the team, and he's ineligible. And it's another major black mark, because he would be there, as opposed to elsewhere. And then he could lose another season, because he already lost 2018. So rather than risk that, he's currently at a junior college and he's working to be a 4-2-4 transfer. What I mean is a four-year school to a two-year school, back to a four-year school. And he's in the transfer portal and he committed to Miami, which he actually did some time ago. So he goes to practice because he's still living in L.A., and he's still very good friends with a lot of players in the team. He was very popular, very well liked. Uh, Clay speaks well of him. He's actually the one player that I recall uh, where Clay publicly defended after the player had been dismissed. Where typically Clay would just offer no comment. But with Bubba, he actually defended his character in this instance. And so. I talked to his mother, and she made it clear that he's very much looking, that Bubba's very much looking forward to playing for Miami and has no intention of playing for USC. However, just my own personal thought here is not something that, that she's told me, but my feeling is there is the smallest window that is cracked open where. If that investigation were to wrap up in the spring while Bubba Bolden is still living in L.A., and, it, and if he were to find out that he will not be suspended, that he's been completely cleared, because right now he's been temporarily cleared, but if he were to find out that he's been completely cleared moving forward from the incident where, in which he was suspended for, 
then I would think there is that small chance that he could come back to this football team. So are they pursuing this this case, this investigation, even though he's no longer a student presently? It's not, it's not for them to pursue. It's, it's a USC matter. They, they have to do it. Are you referring to the family, or are you referring to the university? No, no, for the, the university. Oh yeah, that, no, they they have to they have to do that. Okay, so so it's still ongoing, and it, <clears throat> if it potentially comes to a conclusion, then maybe that's a factor he has to consider. Yeah. And so then, I think the assumption should be made that he's not coming back. Yeah, and, I, I would not expect him to come back. Technically, yeah. he's a recruit, and, and that's the other thing. He went to a practice. Uh, he was able to stand where, you know, like former players stand or coaches or recruits. And that's where he was. Uh, and that's what he is right now. He's actually just a recruit. He doesn't have to play at Miami. He's just committed there. People think that he transferred to Miami. He did not transfer there. He's planning to transfer there once he graduates from the junior college. Yeah. Well... Moving on to the players who are here, who are active, who are on the team, who are part of the 2019 future. We get to see the offense in action for the first time under Graham Harrell. I don't know that we're going to learn a ton this spring, um, in large part because of the aforementioned abject lack of scholarship defensive backs, because of the back-to-basics approach they're taking. Um, uh, a large bulk of practice is, you know, routes on air, individual drills. Um, there's not a whole lot to dissect. I don't think that we have a true, deep, deeper understanding of the offense at this point. But it's still been fun to see it in action. It's been fun to see Graham Harrell standing atop the baseball stadium with a headset on, like like he's calling the game in the fall. Uh, and it's been especially fun to hear from him and, and hear from these new coaches and kind of pry insights that, that way. And and they're all very candid guys, which is great, because I think we are learning stuff just by talking to them, because they're, they're very willing to share their insights, share their philosophies, and to speak openly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, practice, in terms of the team periods, I wouldn't say they look that much different, except, I mean, the quarterback gets the ball out quicker. Yeah. Quicker developing plays. Very, very quick. Very quick. Yeah, much more decisive. But uh, formationally, uh, I haven't noticed a lot of four wide, which is what I was most curious to see if they were going to do. Uh, and, and maybe they could. It was only week one. And, and they're barely installing things. But we haven't seen that yet. Um, I think we are seeing the tight end maybe use more as a receiver. Um, I, you see him flexed out a little bit more. Josh Follow is built for that. So yeah, We saw some two tight end sets. Yeah, but we, we've seen that last year. They did that a lot last year. They did that more than they ever had before. So, no, no, I know, but I'm talking about in terms of the uncertainty about how they would be used in Graham Harrell's offense. They're involved. That, to me, that, yeah. that to me was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, did, we, we still see it. Um, I've closed the book on last year and everything. I'm really just like, <laughs> what am I learning about this new offense now? It, it's, it's a turn the page situation for me. Right. Yeah, but it's a lot of eleven formation with you know one running back, one tight end, next 
predominantly what they've done before and what they do now. And, and Clay made that point even on National Sunny Day that uh, the, the personnel groupings with Harrell weren't that much different than what they've been doing, but it's probably going to be how they use them and, and what the, the point of emphasis will be. That will probably change. Um, and we're, we're seeing, I think, more targets for, like I mentioned, Josh Follow. That's really the, the one we've seen. Daniel Monterbebe has not been out there, and I, I can't tell you if or when he's coming back. And then, uh, you know, Eric Romanoak is out there, and your boy Jude Wolf. But he hasn't really been in the mix yet. I think he's looked decent when he's been out there. I, I, the one thing that's always interesting to me is you see these kids on the high school field, and you're like, man, Jude Wolf is, is, looks big for a high school player. You don't know how they're going to look when they got the spring practice. I think both Jude Wolf and Drake Jackson on the defensive side look big, even on the college field. And yeah. Their size is really transferred, and, and that they look physically ready to play at this level. Yeah, they, they look the part for sure. I just I haven't seen them involved much. I, I don't know. Maybe you have. I haven't seen them getting thrown to much yet, but I'm sure it will come. Sure. And, and, um, Going back to just overall observations, though, like you said, the, the big thing to me is just how quick the ball comes out. Quarterbacks get the snap, and boom, boom, a pass is going in some direction. And I think given the concerns about the offensive line, um, especially a unit that was not great last year and is now replacing three starters, I think that's that's an easy way to mitigate that by not asking them to protect for very long in pass pro. Uh, the other observation we've seen is just kind of the spacing of the linemen. Yeah, there, there's there's much bigger gaps between them. It's uh, that's a, a noticeable, tangible difference in terms of how they line up there. And you know, talking to Austin Jackson after the first practice, we asked him what the biggest difference was, and he goes, "It's we're we're moving a lot more." And he thought that played to their strengths. He goes, "I think we're all athletic." Um, we're all fit for that, but it's definitely a lot more movement on every play for us than it would have been last year. One uh, observation I have with the quarterbacks is that they haven't looked that much different to me, uh, not from from them, not from their respective selves, but from each other. I felt like the offense previously, depending on who was running it. The quarterbacks played so differently. You know, JT and Jack and Fink are all very different quarterbacks. And, yeah. and we didn't know Keen previously. But now, really, I don't think it doesn't matter, but with any of the four that are out there, because what they're called to do, and Harrell is kind of streamlining the fundamentals of the position in the offense, and and I think even the way it's played, and what he's asking them to do, that just early on from what I'm seeing, if I'm watching five reps from JT or five from Fink, who are different, right, that they don't look that different, what, what they're being asked to do and what they're actually uh, carrying out. No, that's, that's fair. Um, I think it's, it's worth adding, though. You know, Graham Harrell's made a point of saying that he's not – he doesn't have a big playbook. He's not big on complicating things, so it's, it's never going to be that. But they also are at the very beginning stages of installing anything. Yeah. And and, and there will be more as time goes on uh, on both sides of the ball. That they've Simplification has been the key word uh, for the entire team so far. And so I, I don't know 
I don't know how much more we're going to see in week two and week three and week four. But but your point's right. Uh, they're all pretty much doing the same thing and, and running the offense the same way. Well, when I think about all three of them in the past, I think they're all very improvisational. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. But but I would use that term for each one of them in different manners. And right now, we just haven't seen that. You know, we've seen maybe a little bit of the running, like from Jack, I've seen him do it a little bit. But there hasn't been a lot of improv in my mind. You know, it's really been get the ball out, get it out quick. Uh, I, I think they're being taught to use the whole field. I think the routes are, are more QB friendly. That's just what I've seen. And, uh, and so maybe some of the, the bad habits or some of the tendencies that you would become accustomed to, you know, with JT having played more, or even Jack, I think those are maybe being weeded out a little bit. Well, let's get into some of the comments this week, and a, a few come to mind immediately for me. Um, I'll start with Michael Pittman. It was always a great, <clears throat> a great quote, a very candid interview. And when he was talking about, you know, what's different, he goes, well, it's much simpler. And, and we're like, well, we keep hearing that, but what's that mean? And he goes, well, like, with the the routes we run, like, there's no there's no depths, there's no splits. It's just like, run this and get open. And it's kind of, it's kind of has like a, like a, a backyard football vibe to it, where it, it, it is it is really that simple, or at least it is at this point. Um, talking to Graham Harrell, he mentions that Tim Drevno was surprised that they only have four run plays in. And he goes, I, I, I can I can I can deal with more and Graham's like, Well no, that's really all you have to deal with, just four run plays. Yeah, he's like make you know, be great again. And so that's all fascinating to me. But then the most telling comment we got all week, which is one you expounded upon in the column, was uh, Harold talking about how he's really scrutinizing the basics, the fundamental techniques of the quarterback position, footwork, um, eyes, everything else. And he was kind of dancing around it, and you asked a great follow-up question. I forget exactly how you phrased it, but it was essentially, is, is this something that you don't think they've been doing as much before? Right. And, and, and he pretty flatly said, I, I don't think that they harped on it as much as we harp on it. Yeah. And it's you can interpret that as an indictment on the previous approach that I do. guys don't have sound <laughs> fundamentals. I think that's that's the first takeaway you would have. Right. Um, I just love uh, I just love Harold's carefree brazenness in, in addressing that, and it, it was pretty telling and pretty insightful. I mean, I think part of it is that you have one guy that is coaching that position, uh, that's calling the plays, and that's drawing up the offense. And that's not a novel concept, but it's not what the norm has been for USC for the last decade. Yeah, it's just crazy to think that all these guys, aside from Keaton Slovis, have been in the program for at least a year, and this new coach comes in and immediately goes, you're you guys, your fundamentals are all off. Like, right. if, you, if you can't get your footwork right and, and your eyes, and you're not going to do anything else well. Yeah. And, and so that's that's his first impression, his first analysis, his first evaluation of this group is that, wow, we have to go back and fix all of this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I when I heard that, I immediately thought of JT because of all the the back foot throws and yeah. bad balance, you know. And I, I feel like he was kind of allowed to do what he wanted. And, and I mean, and Darnold was too. Darnold is a lot bigger physically, and and with JT, uh, who obviously is very talented thrower, just imagine what he could be if. His lower body's right. For sure. For sure. You know, I think this point gets lost at times. I mean, people are aware of it, but I don't think it's it's given the same credence as, or the same weight as the fact that, okay, Graham Harrell's only had three years as a coordinator as at North Texas. Well, he, he also played the game in college at an incredibly high level. He was, he was way up there in the Heisman voting. He threw for... 15,000 yards over four years, whatever it was, 12,000, whatever it was. It was a lot of yards. <laughs> this is a guy who's done it incredibly successfully at this level, and I think that's that's very valuable, too. Yeah, he backed up Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, too. Yeah, so, so he, he's bringing that perspective in where not only have I coached this offense successfully, I was in your position that I ran this offense successfully. I, he, he can operate on both on both levels with these guys in terms of giving the perspective and, and what needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, Amon Rockstein Brown made the point that the typical play call a year ago would have averaged about maybe seven words, and now it would be about three. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing right now with the offense, week one. Yeah, and... and, and you know what? It's it's music to my ears. I, I have always been of the mind that too many coaches way overcomplicate things to the point of diminishing returns. And I, I know you want to be unpredictable. You want to scheme against weaknesses you see in matchups, keep people off guard. But I have seen teams just so thoroughly overcoached to the point of paralyzation. And I'm going to go back to my, my Gainesville well. I watched two years of just horrific offense, and it wasn't that Jim McElwain, the head coach there, didn't know offense. It's that his guys didn't understand what he was preaching. They didn't yeah. get his offense, and it just shut everything down. Right. And I think that was not so much a problem for JT last year, but I also think that Keeping it simple makes a lot of sense, and especially if you're going to beat teams with your tempo, your pace, and keeping them off balance that way, you don't have to uh, have the the 14-inch thick playbook. You know, the, the, my favorite Graham Harrell quote so far was the one in his introductory press conference two weeks ago when he talked about his time in Green Bay and how every play call was a paragraph, and he <laughs> joked to the coaching staff that. If, if you pay me enough money, I'll simplify this whole thing for you and make it easier for everybody. Right. And, and how they didn't appreciate that. But but he goes, that, you know, it's, it's great that you understand this paragraph, but no one in your, in your quarterback room understands this. Right. So I, I, I'm all on board with his approach. Um, maybe it's things I'm getting used to for Tim Drevno and the and the staff only have four run plays in right now, but uh, I, I think it's to everyone's benefit. And they... They have an advantage against most teams based purely on the athletes they have in skill positions. I, I think that you can get by pretty far on that if you have an offense that just caters getting the ball to the playmaker and is is really just 
straight to the point there. Yeah, I, they do. I mean, Clave made that point. Uh, you make even the larger point that we think that we're going to be more talented or at least equal to every team that we're going to play this year, which is why the fan base has been uh, really uh, you know, disappointed with him because everyone knows that you have the talent advantage. And I think about like Mike Leach at Wazoo where they're way undermanned and he has this offense. And you can imagine what he would do if he had a Michael Pittman, you know, and and Tyler Vaughn and Amon Ra and everything. I mean, when he had that, when he had Michael Crabtree, they nearly went undefeated. And it, it was really Crabtree and Harrell. Yeah, and another thing about Harold's personality, I guess we've, you know, gotten a better sense for that getting to talk to him. Maybe some of the fans have watched the videos or whatnot. But he, there's a duality that he has where he, he has this unassuming humility to him in a way, and then also this very brash confidence. Yeah. And, and, and they, they mesh in a very interesting way. And I'll give you two examples. Um, our friend Joey Coffin wrote a great feature on mm-hmm. Graham last week. And one of the anecdotes was his first meeting with the North Texas players when they took over. And when they got there, they were inheriting the third worst offense in college football um, in terms of the national stat rankings. And he walked into that first meeting and said, we're going to average 60 points a game. And, right. and, the, and, the, and the players were all like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, in, in talking to uh, Michael Pittman this week, we asked him what kind of what their first meeting was like with him, and he goes, he just pretty much told us that we're better than every team we play, and that we just have more talent than anyone, and and that can that can be interpreted in the wrong way, in the wrong hands, but w- when you watch the way Graham Harrell operates and the way he talks, you can see him saying that, and you can see it not coming off in a cocky manner so much as a there's no excuse for us not to be good manner. Yeah, I mean, I know that it does sound brash, but where's the lie? Right, exactly. And I, I call that conviction. I think that uh, they've lacked conviction on offense for a while now, and and now they have it, or they're they're going to have it. And, and, and some more comments, you know. I was just struck by some of the unprompted ways the players discussed him. Um, two different players came out and said, we trust him. We believe in him. And the, and, the, and the question wasn't, do you believe in Graham Harrell? Do you trust him? It was just an open-ended question about their impressions. I got that same impression. Uh, the players are smart, and they know that their coach, their offensive coordinator, that he knows what he's doing. And that he believes in what he's doing, and he's able to effectively communicate what he's doing. And, and that's what's most important here, that they understand it. Because they're really good. And I think a lot of their confidence was probably shaken last year, in, in the course of the year, for different people at different times. And this gives them something to, to believe in again. And I think it, they, they probably feel like, okay, we can be USC again. Uh, with, with this guy and we've been saying it for a long time that this team in the, in the right hands has a really high ceiling and that's really in general about the program 
but because there's been there's been so much coaching turnover, you know, between Kiffin and Orgeron and Stark and then Helkin, and it, it just seemed like the the coaching held the roster back in a lot of ways. And now with Harrell, you hope that he'll be here longer than a year, but that's for another day. Yeah, and you know, I've been out. Uh talking to a few high school coaches this week or just out at these uh, seven-on-seven tournaments and people want to talk USC football and they ask how I think they're going to do and I don't know how they're going to do. I, I have a lot of questions, but I do believe that the offense is just going to be better. It, it just it just is. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't see any scenario where it's not. And if you go back to last season and the offense is 10 or 15% better, that changes the number of games. And so I, I think that alone can transform the trajectory of next season relative to what we saw in the fall. There's still other factors that, you know, I, I don't have answers for yet. I'm not ready to say that they can jump right back into a, the national picture. But I think that the offense alone is going to change a lot for this program. It just is. Yeah, it, it's not a question of, you know, if it'll be better, how much on offense. And, and I think... You and I have talked about this, or uh, it's it's become a talking point as to whether or not maybe in the end ending up with Graham Harrell versus Cliff Kingsbury is a better situation. Now, Kingsbury's offensive track record is unassailable, and he would have done phenomenal things here. But from the start, we were very open, in our opinion, that he was here for a year, maybe two. I believe that Graham Harrell might be here for longer than that if they have the season they need to have this fall and stability remains at the top I don't see him bolting on his own anytime soon and this goes back to the point I was making earlier about the humility side to his personality I truly believe that he was content to stay in North Texas for another season or two or whatever he had the earlier chance to talk to North Carolina and possibly go there and turn that down so it wasn't like he was just looking for the next move. This was a move he couldn't pass up, and, and I, I truly think he's going to be here for a while if everything else around him allows for that. Yeah, that was my, my immediate thought with Harold that maybe short term it wouldn't be as dynamic as it would have been with Kingsbury, but long term this could be really good for USC. And uh, I think I've said it here. I, I know I've said it aloud that uh, with Harold, not that he would necessarily maybe succeed Clay Helton as the head coach if there a change were to be made, but I could see him remaining on as an offensive coordinator depending on who the new head coach would be. Yeah, especially if, if they truly establish this identity that we think they're going to. Yeah. That becomes synonymous with what this program is. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely possible that scenario could play out. Or he could do so well that it would transcend the program and and Clay doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, that's that was certainly, I guess, the linchpin to Clay's master plan or Lin Swan's master plan was to, to bring in a guy in a different position that could transform the program without having to make a change at the top. And for all the angst they went through with the, with the Kingsbury saga, 
they ended up in a pretty good place. Yeah, I, I meant transform. Thank you for uh, correcting me without correcting me. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> All right. Back. Cool. Uh, before we depart on the offense, though, we can't have a podcast and not talk about the quarterback competition. <laughs> what or, competition? Or the quarterback showcase or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, so I, I know you have some strong thoughts on this. I'll let you start, but I, I have some that may be a little bit different, but we'll see. We'll one. They usually are. Um yeah, I, I mean, I don't see one now, and it's only been a week, but it's 20%. They only have five weeks, and it's very hard to judge right now what's happening, and you're not going to get a straight answer when you ask the coaches. Uh, I did pose a question to Jack Sears, and when I said, you know, do you believe that there will be an open competition, he told me, I sure hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that kind of uh, would be my answer. I would hope that there would be one because I would hope that they would do everything that they need to to make sure that they found the best quarterback on their roster. But uh, I can't say that we're, that we're seeing anything different right now. Uh, I've written about it, but basically you know, the reps are being split uh, pretty well between the four. You know, there are a lot of reps to go around, and, and they're all getting them. No one's being held back. But I would say JT has basically been in his usual position with the first team and, and working with them more. Uh, he looks like he's their starting quarterback that is just not, like, in pen. In pen school, maybe. That's the vibe I get. Yeah, and, and the quote that raised a lot of eyebrows about that competition was when Clay was asked on Saturday. So JT had made a comment earlier in the week about how this offense and its, and its philosophy reminded him of the way they approached the, the Notre Dame game. And so Clay was asked about that Saturday, about J, JT's comment, and he more or less said, yeah, uh, what I, I saw in that game, the way – JT was operating, you know, whenever he was, a uh, high, high percentage completion rate. That gave me the vision for what this offense could be. And people naturally took from that, that in his vision, JT's the quarterback. Yeah, I, I heard it that way. <laughs> so, you know, my thoughts on the competition, I, I think, I don't think that Clay, in his mind, was disingenuous about it. No. I, th- I, I think his viewpoint was we haven't told JT he's the starter. Yes. Uh, he has to go out there and, and earn that. But for him not to be, he, he has to be beat out. It's not like they're, they're not starting from scratch. They're not starting in square one right. where everything's thrown out and this is two new quarterbacks coming in. Who's going to win? And I don't think that that is a fair expectation in any way. You can't ignore what you've seen or what's your opinions are now Graham Harrell has the preconceived notions as he said he, he came and he hasn't seen these guys up close before so I think he is making his first opinion but even still you have a guy who started a full season and a guy who started one game yeah. and I think for you to go against the guy who started the full season the other guy is going to have to clearly be the better option uh, it, it, it can't be a tie it can't be ambiguous you would have to be so convinced that Jack Sears is the better quarterback for you to make that change. 
angry. You have to knock out the champ. And, yeah, and, 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 to borrow from boxing, uh, JQ's the, the defending champion, and you're not going to win a split decision over him. You have to knock him out. And, and that was my expectation for this all along. And I don't have a problem with that. I think that's fair. If Say that Jack Sears doesn't have a fair chance, I think is maybe not true. If, if he goes out there and his lights out for the entire spring and JT gives him an opening, then that's when the conversation comes up and you go into August with maybe a more balanced footing. But that has to happen first. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would understand that line of thinking if JT played well last year, but I'm of the opinion that he wasn't that good and it affected the offense. And I'm not blaming him for all of the offense, but I'm just saying that the quarterback play was poor for too much of the year. And, and USC got a really high standard for quarterback play. And I'm not saying that I know that Jack Sears would have met it. I'm saying I don't know. And right. if, if I knew that he wouldn't meet it, or if I was confident that he wouldn't meet it, then I wouldn't be harping on this. Sure, but, no, I yeah, but because I don't know what he would do. In fact, if Matt Fink had not gotten hurt versus Utah, then Jack wouldn't have even played. I Matt know, Fink and, would have and, started and, that game. And, and, and that 2 3 ordering from the That start, says everything right. about what the previous staff was evaluating. Yeah. Jack wouldn't have even played. Yeah, and. and we don't need to rehash our our well stated uh, debate here on the two. I, it, it, it's all about how you view what happened last year, and yeah, I, I, I'll just boil it down to, yeah. to my my main point is that I, I think there was a systemic failure, and that JT didn't overcome it, but was also maybe undone by it to a degree. Yeah, because, and, and, and and I agree my, with all that. My, my case evidence to keep introducing that point is that string of games during the, end of the season where he was pretty consistently great in the first half yeah. before the drop-off. Yeah, and it was I weird almost. I think the general consensus was that this staff was not good at making adjustments and was being outcoached after halftime. And you put all that together, and I, I, just, I, think, I think it was more than coincidence that he was a different quarterback before and after halftime. No, I agree. I, and I mean, funny enough, for Jack, it was kind of the opposite, where he was so much better in the second half. Now, let me just give another example, though. Here, um, you know, we're talking about you know, freshman quarterbacks often struggle. I know the standard here is unyielding and always high, but let's look at the last quarterback that Graham Harrell worked with, Mason Fine. Mm-hmm. And I, I know because I saw him play firsthand in his freshman season. Uh, North Texas came to Florida in week two or three of that season. He was very rough. He, obviously, he was overmatched against an SEC opponent, so it wasn't a great um, perspective to have. But his stats that year were 59% completion, six touchdowns, five interceptions, and he started the bulk of that season. Well, next year, he's 31 touchdowns, 15 picks. Next year, he's 27 touchdowns, five picks. Uh, average around 4,000 yards those two seasons. So, Graham Harrell showed what he can do as a developer of talent. And... I, I don't think you can look at JT Daniels and not see the raw potential there. Not see that this guy could be a, a gifted passer, uh, an exceptional passer in the right system. Uh, I, I, I personally believe that this is the right system for him. 
and we'll see what Graham Harrell's analysis is, but I have to believe he's excited by his skill set. Yeah, I haven't been able to figure out yet how much mobility will be valued, and maybe, you know, with JT, they'll find a way to to minimize its importance. That's why I would do. And if they do that, then then sure. Um, because I see potential in JT, I see potential in Jack, but they're pretty different quarterbacks. And in the past, with a lot of these air raids, mobility has actually been a huge weapon. It's been a mark of, of nearly all of them. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them have, have been you know, a, a dual threat guy, which JT is not, but Jack could be. Let me go back to the stats then. Mason Fine, again, who was really the only starting quarterback that Graham Harrell has had as a coordinator. Uh, Mason Fine, in three seasons, totaled 154 rushing yards and 270 attempts. Mm. He averaged 0.6 yards a carry. He yeah, he didn't run. But he, but he was functionally mobile. Like, like Case Keenum was functionally mobile. Even Baker Mayfield. You don't have to run. You don't have to actually... I mean, like in, in Sam Darnold's final season... Because he got sacked a lot, his rushing totals were were very low. I think he ran for like 99 yards, whereas the year before he ran for over 300. But with the sacks, it, it was down to 100. But Darnold is functionally mobile, obviously, and so th- there's a difference between that and what we saw from JT last year, where he was a liability and immobile. Right, I understand that. But again, we talked about how getting the ball out so quick. I don't think he's going to be in many situations where he's holding on to the ball that long where it's even relevant. Yeah, and but think, you, might, you might be right. If they use him that way, then it'll, it'll be less of a factor. Now, I also want to say this just as a, as a official statement on the matter in case I'm being misinterpreted. I, I think Jack is, is really impressive as well. And I think he'd be excited to watch this offense. So it, it's not that I, I don't think he can do it or think he would be really good here. I just... I, I don't see a change happening, and I understand why. Yeah, I, I don't either. In fact, uh, that, that'd be my guess right now. But, you know, we're, we're going to see there are four more weeks of practice. But if we do not see the reps narrowed down between Jack and JT at any point, then there never really was an open competition, and JT will come out of spring as the guy. Because you're not really putting Jack in a position to knock out JT. When you're, when you're putting them all four of them, you know, in a Royal Rumble, then it, really nothing's being accomplished in terms of a competition with the Reds. I'll have one more point to that. I, I think that with Graham being new and, and this being his first true evaluation of all these guys, I think they want as much tape out of the spring on everyone for him to evaluate. And if you listen to Clay's comments, when I think it was in response to your question or someone else's, he said, after the spring, I will let the quarterbacks know where they stand, but a lot can change in a few months. It doesn't mean that is status quo all through August. I think that, yeah, I remember the comment. That was my question. I think that he was speaking to the whole team because he wants to make everyone believe that Nothing has been won yet. Nothing's been decided. Everything's open at every position. And just because you're in one spot on the depth chart doesn't mean that you'll remain that way or that you're there forever. Yeah, my point though is I don't think that there was ever 
you thought where we've got to narrow this thing down and get it down to the final two and choose the quarterback in the spring. I don't think that's ever the thinking. I think they're taking such a simplistic, basic approach here. They have no defensive backs to go against, so what are you really learning anyway? I, I think it's just about getting everybody reps this spring. So I don't think you're going to see anything narrowed down. I don't think that was ever ever the intent or the, or the plan. Yeah, I, I didn't know what the plan was with Harold because we really came upon him so late. We know what Cliff Kingsbury said, and that was much earlier, obviously, before he left. And he made it clear that it would be open competition. And and I knew that that was genuine because I know someone that spoke to his agent and who relayed to, the, to my source that he didn't like what he got from JT. And... He didn't know how good he was. And and therefore, he won that thing wide open and where he would have basically, what you said out, this wasn't going to start from scratch and, you know, that that JT would, would come in and the guy with the experience. That's not the way that Kingsbury was going to approach it. Yeah. I, I just think that they, I think in their minds, this is open competition. It's maybe not what a lot of people would interpret when they first heard those comments, but I, I think the approach this spring is just to get everyone reps, evaluate everyone, and go from there. I, I think that's all they're trying to do here, given the uh, the personnel issues, given that they're installing new things. I don't think we're going to learn a ton about anything this spring. That's just the sense I get overall. Yeah, it's going to be hard. That that is the the caveat to everything is what they're up against with that defensive backfield and I think it, it does make it hard to to draw any conclusions um, about how far along the quarterback might be in the offense. I, I mean, we've been hitting at it, but for people who haven't been out there don't know. Well, rip the scab off then, Ryan, if we, if we haven't been making <laughs> I thought I made it clear, but I actually don't know if I, if I can overstate it. I'm going to make it clear. The defensive backfield right now in all drills is largely comprised of walk-ons. And Greg Burns, talking about it, even showed that number 44 and number 36 got here two days ago. And, right. it's, and, and they're essential pieces this spring because there's no other bodies. Yep. In fact, in fact, one of those guys had an interception in one of the, the team drills earlier this week. Jack Drake. But, yeah. So... <laughs> I mean, you have Isaac Taylor Stewart, who didn't play at all last year on defense. You have who else? Elijah Griffin <laughs> is out. Elijah got. You have Greg back, but they didn't have him game Greg one, Johnson's obviously. Back. Dominic's out. Dominic's out. Yeah. You have Chase Williams. You have Chase Williams. You, you have your two protected starting safeties, but they're both limited to the sense where you're not going to throw them out in full contact drills. Right. And if I'm going to pull them out. And, and C.J. Pollard is out for spring. Pollard's out. Uh, Britton Allen, the freshman, has is, is looked good, but then he missed practice Saturday. They wanted to play him at safety, but now they're trying him at corner because they need bodies there. But the, the first takeaway that anyone gets watching these practices are, who's who's playing cornerback? Who, who is that out there at safety? It's just right. the walk-ons who are holding spots down and doing a noble, a noble task, uh, as placeholders this spring, but it really does affect what you're going to learn about both sides of the ball. It's just the reality. Before we go to the defense, I just want to give a little shout-out, a little 
acknowledgement to our first impressions of freshman quarterback Keaton Slovis. Okay. Uh, I, I think a lot of fans, but I don't think I know because I'm on our board. I see what's said. A lot of people really wrote off his addition to the program because he was a three-star guy. Uh, he committed so early that he, there really wasn't any kind of recruiting battle for him. Um, so there was no buzz leading up to his signing. Uh, you know, he doesn't fit the mold of the recent five-star, four-star signees. But as I dropped here on the podcast a few times before and talking to people who played against him out in Arizona, they thought he had a ton of potential. And the point they always made to me was that he was the only Division One guy on his team. So his team was not good. And he was the only reason his team was even competitive in some games. And they thought he was a, a truly legit uh, power five prospect who maybe needed a little more time to develop, but had that potential. So we get to see him for the first time this week, and I was really impressed. Um, you know, he's not going to be a factor this year or probably even next year, but I think that he's a worthwhile uh, addition to this roster. He has a very smooth motion, and he's largely accurate, especially when we watched him in the, in the red zone drills. I, he was dropping some dimes there in the corner of the end zone and, and looks very comfortable and confident in the role. So I think maybe people will uh, come around on, on Keaton as a, as a valuable addition to this team. Yeah, I'll admit that I've been impressed and surprised. He's a very refined thrower, which would make sense given that he played for Kurt Warner, but you don't feel that typically with a true freshman quarterback in their first spring. You just don't. Even even if they're really good, even if they've been well coached, I've been surprised at some of the throws that he's attempted and that he's completed and what he's trying to do. Very live arm. And, and the physical stuff is kind of the, the first impression. That's the thing that you're going to pick up on and that's what we've been able to witness. So don't want to get ahead of ourselves at all. But, like I made the point earlier, he fits in. And I look up and sometimes I'm wondering who, who threw that. Where, where before, like, without even watching half the play, I would kind of know who was in there at quarterback. But now, with, with all four of them, they've all kind of blended in together because of what Harold's been doing and what he's been teaching them. And Keaton has a, a better, I mean... He might have, maybe for like a, a mid-range throw, he might have the the second-best arm, I think, behind JT for an intermediate throw. So I, I've liked him. Um, a quick tease. So we, we did a soft opening for our USC Next Up series a couple weeks ago with the Nick Figueroa profile. And that's some really good feedback. I appreciate that people enjoyed that. Um, with the bye this week, it's an ample time, or uh, not ample, I'm losing my words. It's an obvious time to try a few more. So we'll have a few more features on USC's uh, freshman early enrollees. We'll have a Keaton Slovis story so you can kind of learn more about him, about his mindset coming into this program where you have JT entrenched, you have Bryce Young coming in. You know, that's a lot to go up against. And I thought he had some very interesting thoughts on what it didn't matter to him and, and his approach to that. So look for that story this week. Uh, we'll have Jude Wolf this week, maybe a couple more, but those will start coming up pretty regularly here. All right. All right, defense? 
Should we do it? Yeah, I, let's just go back to the defensive backfield. And uh, I know we alluded to it, but I actually feel bad for them because they're being put in a position to just kind of get trampled on right now. The kids are out there, and I know they're grateful for reps. And hopefully it will be a good learning experience for you know Isaac Taylor Stewart and, and a couple of the younger guys that haven't really played a lot. But I'm seeing one of probably one of the best receiving cores in the country go up against you know, probably one of the most depleted secondaries in the country. I'm not even sure that we have to say one of. I, I can't. I cannot imagine that there is a comparable situation anywhere else in the great U.S. of A. <laughs> the great U.S. of A. Right. Yeah. And if you're wondering how they got there, or, or how we got here, and then how how this happened, well, uh. Just go back and look at the previous recruiting classes, particularly 2017 and 2016, and the majority of the players that they brought in are no longer on the team. And and it'll happen that quickly. You know, just you take two recruiting classes back to back, and if those guys don't pan out for one reason or another, then that can kill you at a position. And, and that's what they're up against right now, with whether it be lack of development or, you know, bad evaluation or just a transfer, you know, off-field stuff. I mean, they dealt with all of it in that defensive backfield. But, and, and, and in the timing of it with the injuries for Chipola Mal and Hufunga, who we think are both very good, but right now neither are available. They will be in in the excuse me in the in the fall. They're they're just in a bad spot, and for me, like I I can't not think about it. You know, I I don't want to only talk about that or only write about that, but I feel like it compromises everything that they're doing in eleven on eleven for the whole spring. It does, and I don't think that anyone truly realize what it would look like until you, you see it. Yeah. I, I was at the Adidas 7-on-7 tournament yesterday and, and a parent of a current player came up to me and said, you see you're playing that quarterback out there? I said, yeah, it's, it, it's rough. And again, it's not a, a knock on those guys. I mean, that, that they're coming out as walk-ons and they're doing what's asked of them. But to watch, to watch a guy try and defend Devin Williams and just be so thoroughly overmatched from the start, the the entire drill was really just a, a pitch and catch exhibition. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not fair. It's basically unfair, and I always kind of cringe even when I use that word because people think like, "What do you mean? Like life isn't fair, or who cares about fair?" But come out to practice and watch Michael Pittman or Devin Williams run a, a go-route on, on one of these walk-ons. And it, it kind of feels like, what's the point? Yeah. I, I asked Clancy Pendergast point blank, I said, how much does this undermine what you can accomplish this spring? And he was very dismissive of that and said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't hold us back at all. We have our menu and, and the guys, even the ones not playing, 
know what's going on. But I, I just I think you can't help but be slowed down in your, in your process. Um, but you know what? Speaking of slowing down the process, <laughs> that's been their intent. Yeah. So uh, Clay dropped a nugget on Monday, Tuesday, on the first practice, about asking Clancy to simplify things on, on the defense. And on Thursday, we got a chance to talk to these assistant coaches. So uh, Clancy was asked about that and really had no interest in indulging that whole topic. And his, his response was basically, uh, I've been a coordinator for X amount of years, and every offseason I evaluate things. And so someone else came at it from a different direction and asked the same question but, but differently. And he gave the exact same response. I've been a coordinator for X amount of years, and I think every offseason you look at things and evaluate. So we weren't going to get any insight into what the simplification entailed to him. But fortunately, with this new crop of assistant coaches we have, most of whom are, are very interesting, we got to talk to Greg Burns. And Greg Burns laid it all out there. He said, we are going back to the basics, starting with this is how you put on your shoes and tie your shoelaces. This is how you get into your stance. He said, we put in two different defense concepts for the first practice, two more for the second, and they're, they're, they are starting over, basically, with this group in terms of what they're introducing to them and making sure that they understand it. And, and Greg Burns said, you know, back 10 years ago, we didn't ever think about that. We just said, here's what we're doing, do it. Now, it's, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, do you understand why we're doing it? Let me help you understand why we're doing it. And they're going through every step of the process that way to make sure that there is a fundamental foundation of knowledge and comfort and confidence before they add anything else upon that. So it, it, that goes back to our overall point here that this is not a spring to have major takeaway opinions about what we're seeing because it's basically a, a starting over process for this team on both sides of the ball. Yeah, absolutely. You can tell Burns approaching it like he came from a 5-7 and seven team. <laughs> and I think that's a, a good way to, to approach it. I mean, defensively, they deserve better, but they were not great. And, and maybe they would have been if they weren't unlucky at times or if they had a better offense. I don't know. I definitely thought that the defense was good enough to win a lot more than they did. But at the end of the day, you own it as a team. And that defensive backfield uh, needs to be better, even though they lost really important players like Biggie Marshall and, and Marvell Tell and other veterans. Uh, so I can appreciate what he's trying to do there. I think that everybody will be better for it. And um, and maybe it was, just, it was probably good to break up that marriage between Pendergast and Bradford where maybe they were in sync and, and they understood what they wanted, but it, it wasn't it wasn't always working. And, and they do need to go to square one in some respects. And, and I think that um, you know, all three levels of the defense could, could benefit from that. Yeah, so uh, let, me, let me have a, a nugget on one of the few healthy guys that we have mentioned. Um, Isaac Taylor Stewart obviously came in as a heralded five-star recruit. Um, in the 2018 class, and it's, I don't know if rare is the right word, but normally you expect a guy with that kind of stature to get a little bit more run his first year. 
he played most of the special teams for three games, then hurt his ankle, and that was pretty much all we saw of him. Well, talking to Clancy, and as we've already established, uh, if Clancy doesn't want to indulge a question, he simply won't. We'll talk around it. When I asked him about Taylor Stewart, he actually kind of perked up and gave a really interesting answer and said he was really coming along the first few weeks of last season, and I was about ready to start playing him on at quarterback and giving him some opportunities, and then he got hurt. And I don't know that we necessarily realized he was that close to maybe having a chance to prove himself last year before the injury. Have you been watching him in practice? Uh, I've been watching everything in practice, so I, I don't know that I have a firm takeaway on what I've seen from him. Yeah, I'm just curious. I uh, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I I don't I don't really believe Quincy. Well, the interesting thing is that he's not a guy that, that feels the need to throw out platitudes or, or to to say that stuff about people. He's, he's he's all too happy to not answer your question. Sure. If you nothing. So so when he voluntarily does give you something uh, interesting and tangible like that, I think it comes from a place of uh, useful information. I sure. I mean, I don't know. I, he only has like two healthy scholarship cornerbacks right now. He's not going to put them down. The point was, it wasn't him saying, he's awesome, he's great, he's doing a great job. It was him saying that we came very close to giving him a role last year before he got hurt. Right, when, if you remember that time of the year when he got hurt was when Greg Johnson was really struggling and they were looking at Elijah Griffin and they ultimately inserted Langley into the lineup full time. So, there was an opening at that time. Yep, so, I don't know. We'll see. I understand the verdict's still out of him. We'll definitely see, but I found that comment interesting. Um, the other news on defense is with the inside linebackers and John Houston and EA kind of swapping roles. What was your takeaway from that or your impression? Well, I was told that, that they wanted to move EA because they definitely want to ensure that he'll be playing, but they weren't ready to make him the middle linebacker. Yeah. That they weren't comfortable with him having to make all the calls in which, I mean, they, they did give him that responsibility uh, the big part of last year when Cam Smith went down and, you know, mixed results. And then they, they actually, they ultimately benched him for about three weeks, which yeah. they don't want to do again or they shouldn't have done. I'm going to say that. And now, okay, well, if we can't play him at MLB yet or we're not ready to, then we'll play him at weak side and we'll move John over. If you recall, though, even when he was playing middle linebacker in place of Cam, a lot was made about how how Houston was having to make the calls, a lot more communication responsibilities from his position. Yeah, yeah. So probably not a big deal. I know that there's like a catcher, a catch to middle linebacker, but in this defense, typically those two spots are interchangeable. Anything else on the defense? I do have one more talking point of the offense that we forgot. I want to jump back to because it really interests me. But jump it back, Ryan. Okay, I'm jumping. So, uh, really enjoy talking to the new assistant coaches this week. I mentioned uh, the conversation with Greg Burns. We also had a nice story on Burns, kind of um, his background coming back to USC, how he got the call about the opening, uh, as Adam had reported through the process. You know, he was kind of linked to that job and then wasn't and then was again. 
and I asked him point blank about that and he kind of smiled and said it was a long process let's just say that but uh, he had some really interesting thoughts about about coming back to USC after being a part of Pete Carroll's staffs back in the glory days as he put it um, but we also talked to Mike Jinks the new running backs coach and he has a very interesting story in his own right as he was the one guy that Cliff Kingsbury brought on board to help him install his offense and he had coached under Kingsbury at Texas Tech before leaving to become the head coach of Bowling Green for two and a half seasons. And so he moves his whole family out here, and then Kingsbury gets the Cardinals job and leaves. And um, I didn't know how much he would indulge the question when I asked him, but he gave a perfect response. He said, I had been here for a couple weeks, but I just got my family here, and we're getting off the plane. And my son says, Dad, Cliff's going to Arizona. Does this mean we're fired again? Or rehired. So, uh, he, and I asked him if, if uh, Kingsbury tried to lure him with him to the Cardinals, and he said that they had some conversations, but I think he he made it clear that he genuinely valued being at USC, and also valued not bringing his family again, and he talked to Clay Helton, and it worked out, especially with, with Graham Harrell coming aboard, uh, it, it once again made perfect sense to have him on the staff. Yeah, potentially a big addition. I mean, it's new for Kim Drebno, it's new for Clay Helton, it's new for Terry Colbert, for John Baxter, for everybody on that staff other than Mike Jinks. Yeah, and, and, and so in also talking to him, though, we asked him about his philosophy on the running backs and what he looks for. And he made it very clear that he wants to have a three-down back. He doesn't want to have to bring someone in on passing downs. He doesn't want to have to make substitutions and break up the flow of the tempo they have to play with on offense. And beyond that, though, the part that I liked hearing the most was he said, I want one of these guys to come out and convince me that they deserve 20 to 25 carries a game. <laughs> he has no, if you take him out of his word, he has no problem going with a, a workhorse. And my, one of my biggest gripes last year, and we communicated that on the podcast and debated I didn't like the committee approach because it was so rigid and arbitrary at times. And I just thought it undermined the whole thing where you would have uh, said where go off on a series and then not play again for the next three. And it just, just didn't make any sense to me. And so I, I truly hope that they do, whoever it is, whether it's Vi, whether it's Carr, whether it's Step, whoever it is that – if they have a guy who's producing and in a flow, they let him do that and let him play for a long stretch or the bulk of the game. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see how it'll play out because I'm looking at the two running backs at the top, Carr and Vivai, and are you really going to give one 20-25 and then give the other one like five? I don't know. But both of them can be a three-down back. They, I think they're both built for that. Um, I don't know that Vivai is the same talent as a runner as Carr, but he could play three downs for sure. And uh, and Carr still has to prove that he's full because we talked to Clay about it, and I know Clay kind of raved about what he's been doing, but he hasn't been doing very much. No, he, hasn't. he just hasn't. He's not gotten that many reps, and I didn't expect that to be honest. Because you're not really managing any kind of injury. 
You know, the, the whole back injury happened over a year ago, and the ankle was not like a severe injury, and even that happened at the end of October. And I would think that he'd be out there and and killing it. And he's just not getting a lot of work, but Vibe's getting a lot of work, and then we're seeing a lot of good work from Marquis Stepp. And he's another one that I think you have to play and has to have a role and, and might have to be a situational guy early on. I don't know, but I would definitely use him. I think he can do things that the other two can't. Yeah, the, my guess on the car situation is that there may not be a presence, maintenance need or, or concern, but I think there's now a degree of fragility attached to him. And That's if, fair. You're not, if you're not going to learn a whole lot this spring, then... And tread carefully. Yeah, tread carefully. And it was interesting when we asked Jinx about car specifically, he, is, he went straight to it. He said... I went back and watched his freshman tape, and it's very exciting to see what he can do. Uh, and pretty much acknowledged that the guy we saw last year was not the full Stephen Carr. And it didn't right. take him long in his evaluation to see that just by watching the tape. And he's, he, like many fans, he's clinging to what is on that tape from their freshman year that those first few games of that freshman year specifically. Yeah, I mean, that guy I would give the ball 20, 25 times to every week. And, and you know, I asked Carr about this offense and what appeals to him about it, and he said, you know, make no mistake, we're going to run the ball, but they're also going to throw the ball to us a lot out of the backfield, and that's always been a part of my game. That's something I'm very excited about. And when I asked Clay about, you know, how that's a fit for, for Carr, he, he said, you know, Stephen could line up as a receiver. He did. It, he, yeah, he did that? freshman year. Yeah. So I, all that, all those comments put together leads me to be optimistic that we may see a true breakout season from Carr. And again, I, I wasn't here as freshman year, so I, I just see the numbers. I didn't see what you saw that year. But even with whatever he was battling, I was so impressed last August, I thought this guy's going to be a stud this year. And it just never happened. Right. And, and, and clearly, there were reasons, and if you parse the comments from Clay and from Jinx, maybe he was hesitant, maybe the injuries were in the back of his mind, and there wasn't a full confidence there. Uh, that's a word that both of them used about him finding his confidence this spring. But I, I have to believe that potential is still there and that he's probably a very good fit for this offense. With running backs, it could take a while. We saw it with Justin Davis, where it took about two full years before he looked he looked right again, and he looked like the guy that we had seen his freshman year. Uh, with Carr, if you, I mean, you should go back and watch the highlights from, it's really the first month of his freshman year, because he did get hurt at the end of that September. But prior to that, he looked like a future All-American. And you know I don't hyperbolize. I do not just say that about everyone. But he looked like, like okay, you might be the best player on the team in yeah. the future. You'll become that. I, I think I think Clay even just came out and said it in his comments the other day that, that there was some hesitation from him about contact last year. I mean, he was thinking too much instead of, as he put it, just planting his foot and turning up field and, and trying to split the defenders and going. Yeah, Key Martin talked about that too, that he would, that Carver looked look for the home run too much. 
but, but I totally understand that if you've if you're coming off back surgery and and you went through a tough year physically, and your position by nature is to take on contact every play, it would be understandable for that to be in the back of your mind, and you to wonder, how's this going to affect my back or this? And, you know, you know what's what's the impact of this going to be? And so, so hopefully he's passed that mental hurdle, and we get to see that player that you saw two falls ago. Yeah, I mean... We'll see how, how much that's even valued in this offense. We just have so much to learn about it. Yeah. But uh, it's definitely something that the fan base would appreciate. They would oh, love to see Stephen Carr be dominant again. I'll add this in the part about the, the rotation. You know, it, it's very possible that, that no one separates in that way and earns those 25 carries, and so there is a split. But if we see an arbitrary rotation, uh, running back by rotation committee approach, then we're going to know that that Clay is still pulling a lot of strings there and superseding things on offense. Because I did not get any sense from Jinx that that's what he wants or what he looks for. Well, it's good to see assistant coaches have their own plan because it did seem like they had been deferring too much uh, in, in the current tenure of Helton, but prior prior staff. I just felt like everything came back to Helton and, and, and Clancy in terms of like who played and how much they played and, and the assistant coaches, the way that they would describe it, didn't really determine you know, who they were sending out there. Yeah. And I think they need to. You know, I mean, I, I get the final decision would be made by your head coach on all fronts, but I think your position coaches need to kind of have that that ability to say, hey, look, this is our best guy, and we need to ride him. Well, yeah, there's there's value to giving them that ownership and that the players then know what's happening in practice when they're just off in their position group, that that matters, that that can affect their playing time. When it's just Mike Jinks working with his running backs – and Clay's on the other side of the field, it still matters what they do there could impact their role. Yeah. If, if, if that coach has no sway or no authority, then it's easy to just go through the motions because this is just another drill. It doesn't really, you know, impact any kind of thinking. Right. Well, that's, that's a lot of conversation between practices and, uh, against the secondary full of walk-ons. <laughs> hey, that's what we do at Trojan Chuck. We do. That, that, that was good. Uh, Adam, always good to uh, sit down with you and, and hash things out. We'll, uh, we'll have a lot more podcasts coming the rest of the spring. Like I said, with the team on by this week, we still have some leftover stories I want to get to, but we also are going to drop a few of these features on the incoming class. We call it our USC Next Up series. We've uh, run one so far on Nick Figueroa. Uh, it's pretty much just kind of finding – going in-depth on the most interesting aspect of each of these guys' personal paths to this point or stories. With Figueroa, it was that he had gone to an FCS program and immediately realized he could do more, went the JUCO route, kind of blew up as a recruit, and had a very, very tough final 48, 72 hours uh, figuring out where, where he was going to go. Um, but every story is different with, uh, with Keaton Slovis. It's, it's about him knowing what he's walking into here and knowing that he's got JT Daniels and Jack Sears ahead of him and Bryce Young coming in behind him. And 
and why he was okay with that and what his mentality was and kind of what shapes that. So we'll run a few of those this week and uh, kind of reintroduce you to that concept, and we're going to eventually get to everyone in this uh, 2019 class. All right, look forward to it. Everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks for all the support and patronage on the site, and we'll be back with you soon.